earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks so much for joining me today. Maybe you're in your car, or maybe you're at home sitting by your radio or on a mobile device, or perhaps you're catching the podcast. Friends, I know that war is a terrible thing, and we should work for and pursue peace as best we can, but I'd like to share a true story with you that came out of the American Civil War. A farmer whose name was Blake got drafted as a soldier. Well, he was deeply concerned about leaving his family because his wife had died and there'd be no one to support and take care of his children in his absence. The day before he had to leave for the army, his neighbor and friend, Charlie Durham, came by to visit him. Charlie said, Blake, I've been thinking. You're needed here at home, so I've decided to go into the army in your place. Blake was so overwhelmed that for a few minutes he stood there speechless. Charlie's offer just seemed too good to be true. He grabbed Charlie's hand, hugged him, and thanked God for his young friend who was willing to go for him and be his substitute. Well, friends, Charlie Dorham went to the front lines and performed his duties nobly, but he was shot and killed in the first battle. When Blake learned the news that his friend was killed, he immediately saddled his horse and swiftly rode out to the battlefield to search for Charlie. After some time, he finally found his friend's body. He decided to make arrangements to have him buried in the churchyard near the spot where they had often stopped to talk after the services. On a piece of marble and with his own hands, Blake carved an inscription. It was roughly done, but with every blow of the hammer on the chisel, tears poured down his face. He then took his makeshift tombstone and placed it over the grave where Charlie Durham, his devoted substitute, was buried. Townspeople who knew them even wept as they read Blake's brief but touching inscription, He died for me. Friends, in some small way this human scenario pictures for us a much greater divine scenario. It pictures what Jesus Christ has done for us. You see, friends, if our greatest need had been for information, God would have sent an educator to us. If our greatest need had been for technology, God would have sent a scientist to us. And if our greatest need had been for money, God would have sent an economist to us. But since our greatest need, friends, was forgiveness, God sent a Savior to us. 
Last time on our broadcast, I mentioned that the Christ event was necessary because there was a problem. And for a quick review, the Christ event encompasses the birth, life, and ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. There is a problem, but we humans are sheepish to acknowledge it. The reason why the gospel is often offensive to the world is because every time we Christians refer to Jesus as our Savior, we're implying that we needed saving from something. And friends, this is what is repugnant to the world. The world refuses to acknowledge that we humans are tainted by sin, inherited from our first parents, and we need salvation. We need a Savior. You see, friends, the Bible is forthright and clearly defines the problem, sin. But the Bible is also forthright and offers us the solution. So, friends, today's question is, so what's the solution? The solution is, we need a Savior, and we have a Savior. And it's interesting that in a post-resurrection teaching series, we should reach back to the Christmas story for the answer, the solution, if you will. In Luke 2, 8-12, we find these memorable words, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. The first thing that I want us to see, friends, is that Jesus is our Savior. Let's recall a few more details from the Christmas story. Do you remember when Joseph first found out Mary was pregnant? We learn that he was a righteous man and didn't want to disgrace Mary, so he planned to break off the engagement secretly. And while Joseph was mulling this over, an angel appeared to him in a dream, coaxing him to follow through with the wedding plans, because what was conceived in her was from the Holy Spirit, and not some other guy. It's in Matthew's Gospel where we get at the angel's conversation with Joseph. In Matthew one twenty one, we read, And she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, which in Hebrew is Yeshua. And here's the kicker, because he will save his people from their sins. And for you students of the Bible out there, the angel defined Jesus' name for us. The name Yeshua in Aramaic means God saves. And the save part of the word can also be rendered salvation, which then gives us God is salvation. And the word carries with it these additional meanings, save, rescue, deliver, and liberate. The understanding of this word was originally cast in a military context, 
and the quintessential event in Israel history that forever burned into their minds that their God, Yahweh, was their deliverer, their rescuer, was the Red Sea crossing experience in Exodus 14. So this actually enhances our understanding of the Palm Sunday triumphal entry and the loud shouts of the crowd that included Hosanna, which in Hebrew is Hoshiana, or Lord save now. In other words, that festive Palm Sunday crowd was seeking a military coup led by Jesus to rescue and liberate the Jewish people from the oppressive regime of Rome. Well, let's rewind back to Matthew one twenty one in the angel's words. You shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Just in case you may be thinking that this verse only applies to Jewish people and that this is a salvation path that was intended for Jews only, we have corroboration from the Apostle John in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. He, Jesus, is the satisfactory atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. See, friends, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament writers lifted a word out of their cultural toolbox, a word that has significance in the Greek pagan religions. The word is helasmos, and in more literal English translations, it's translated propitiation. In the Gentile pagan world, propitiation was understood to mean appeasing the gods or satisfying the gods by turning their wrath away to gain their favor by means of a sacrifice. So the New Testament writers elevated this word's meaning to a loftier height to communicate to us that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross was the one act that satisfied God's justice concerning our sin and the one act that opened the door through which we may receive forgiveness of sins. Nothing else is required and nothing more is required. This is reinforced again by the Apostle John in 1 John 4, 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice, there it is again, for our sins. Friends, the words atonement and propitiation are certainly $6,000 words. So let me just summarize the distinctions in this simple way. They are interconnected, but we should also distinguish them. And a very easy way to distinguish them is this. The governing principle behind atonement is substitution. Our sins are atoned for by Jesus because he became our substitute. In other words, he died in our place, on our behalf, for us. 
and the governing principle behind propitiation is satisfaction. In other words, Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice satisfied the demands of God's justice. And this is where our second answer comes to our question. So what's the solution? First, Jesus is our Savior, and now second, Jesus is our substitute. This is spelled out in great detail, friends, in the book of Leviticus, and particularly chapter 16. Verses 5 through 10 are our particular focus. This is the section dealing with the two goats Aaron is to mark. One goat is for a sin offering, and the other goat is to be sent away into the wilderness. We get our English word scapegoat from this. The New Testament parallel for this is the fact that in one person, Jesus Christ, the atonement of the two goats was combined. This is also prefigured in Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Apostle Paul virtually restates these truths in Romans 5, 6 through 11. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Friends, Jesus is our substitute. But let's recap the human predicament. You see, the world refuses to acknowledge that we're in a predicament. Yet Paul and other New Testament writers vividly set forth numerous metaphors to describe the human predicament and the solution provided by the work of Christ. As sinners, we are slaves that need redeeming. As enemies, we need to be reconciled and have friendship restored. As a corpse, we need to be resurrected. Ephesians 2 reminds us we were dead in transgressions and sins, but God raised us up with Christ. As criminals, we need to be acquitted. And as captives, we need to be set free. Friends, there's a popular but untrue cliche. God helps those who help themselves. Some people even think this is in the Bible. But biblically speaking, friends, it's more correct to say God helps those who acknowledge that they are helpless to help themselves. Remember the first beatitude? Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
The original audience would hear it this way. Blessed are the humble who recognize and acknowledge their own spiritual bankruptcy, their spiritual poverty. Friends, we can't redeem ourselves, and we can't redeem each other either. The psalmist acknowledged this when in Psalm 49, 7 and 8, he declares, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever. This is why the Messiah, Jesus, had to be God. No mere mortal could redeem other mortals. No human being can redeem the human race. I propose that Jesus being our substitute is prefigured in the account of Abraham and Isaac when Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. You remember that story, right? It's in Genesis 22. There at the site, Abraham has everything ready. But Isaac says, My father, behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answers, God will provide for himself the lamb, or as the Hebrew says, God will see to it himself. The Hebrew here can also be translated, God will provide himself the lamb, hinting that God himself will be the lamb. But Abraham likely didn't realize what was behind what he was saying. We have the added benefit of our New Testament to give us a vision as to making the connection between Abraham's response and the future work of Jesus Christ, who as God in the flesh sacrificed himself for our sins. When Jesus appears on the scene in the first century Greco-Roman world, and he's about to embark on his public ministry, we find John the Baptist baptizing people in the Bethany area. The Pharisees sent representatives to him to inquire if he was the Messiah. Remember, he said, a voice crying in the wilderness. Then the following day he saw Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. He then added, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Friends, what better way to declare our need for a substitute Savior than to proclaim that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes our sins away, who went to the cross in our place on our behalf and for our salvation. The Apostle Paul echoes these very sentiments when he said in 2 Corinthians five, fourteen through 21 these words in part, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he, Jesus, died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, friends, last time we asked, what's the problem? We are sinners. This time we ask, what's the solution? The solution is that we need and have a Savior. 
And thankfully, we also learn today that first, Jesus is our Savior. Second, Jesus is our substitute. And now third, because of those, Jesus is our solution. Jesus is our solution because Jesus is God's solution for the whole human race. Let's recall the angel's words to the shepherds in Luke 2. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Messiah the Lord. Those Hebrew shepherds would have heard the last phrase this way. There has been born for you a Savior, who is Messiah God. So, friends, it was for us. Now, our human predicament and God's solution may be likened to a man who fell into a pit and couldn't get himself out. A subjective person came along and said, I feel for you down there. An objective person also came by and said, It's logical that someone would fall down there. A Christian scientist walked by and said, You only think that you're in a pit. A Pharisee strolled by and proudly remarked, Only bad people fall into pits. A mathematician came by and began calculating how the man fell into the pit. A news reporter heard about the man falling into the pit and wanted the exclusive story on his pit. A fundamentalist happened to notice the man in the pit and pointed his finger at him and said, You deserve your pit. Confucius likely would have said to the man, If you had listened to me, you would not be in that pit. Had Buddha been there, he would have said to the man, Your pit is only a state of mind. A realist came by and observed, Yep, that's certainly a pit. A scientist walked by and began calculating the pressure necessary in pounds per square inch to get the man out of the pit. A geologist happened to come by, and when he saw the man, told him, You know, you should really appreciate the rock strata in that pit. An evolutionist stopped by and sneered, You are a rejected mutant destined to be removed from the evolutionary cycle. You are going to die in that pit, so you can't produce more pit-falling offspring. The county inspector arrived and asked the man if he had a permit to dig that pit. A professor moseyed on by and proceeded to lecture him on the elementary principles of the pit. An evasive man walked around the crowd and avoided the subject of his pit altogether. A self-pitying person looked down at the man and remarked, You haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. A charismatic whisked by and shouted, Just confess that you're not in a pit. An optimist happily flitted by and said, Things could be worse. A pessimist dragged his feet in a melancholy tone and said, Things will get worse. But Jesus, seeing the man in the pit, took him by the hand and lifted him out of the pit. Friends, this made me think of Psalm 40, verse 2. He, God, brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. Friends, in the mid-70s to the mid-80s or so, the band Glad sang a song called Savior. Here are some of the lyrics. Another day, another headline gives you the news. But there's nothing really new in the news anymore. Just another set of problems you're trying to ignore. 
Another night, another movie takes you away to a world where you're sure you can find your dreams in the beautiful lies on the screen. Then the chorus chimes in. Could it be we need a savior? Something more than just a hand? Do you think we need a savior? Will we ever understand? A later verse then adds, Your heart and mine, hoping to find we will be better, better someday, some way. But it's more than just a matter of time. You're going to find without Jesus, there is no way, no way. Well, friends, to review our second question in this series is, So what's the solution? The solution is we need a Savior. What Jesus did was for us. So we have a Savior. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our substitute. And Jesus is our solution. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, I can see we're coming to the end of today's program. I hope it's been a blessing as well as edifying and challenging. And just know that it would be my honor to be praying for you as we all seek to live each day with the realization that it was for us. Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection solved our sin problem. In the crucifixion, Jesus' shed blood forgives us of our sins. And in Jesus' resurrection, we're given the power to walk in newness of life. Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. And if you'd like to join a Word from the Word support team, please write me as well. I'll give you the details. Additionally, thanks to those of you whose support helps keep this program on the air. It is truly appreciated. One listener recently wrote me and said, Thanks again so much for forwarding me the podcasts. I've been taking the time to go back and start at the beginning and re-listen to them. I have them all saved. I guess it's much healthier to binge on your lessons than a silly show on Netflix. Stay healthy, love to your wife, and God bless. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And whenever you feel as if nobody loves you, remember, Jesus does. Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com. 